Uh, we've been in a really neat season for our church uh, with our preaching elder on sabbatical. Uh, we've been blessed by faithful pastors and a few of us from the teaching team to step in and lead in the proclamation of God's word. Uh, Pastor Josh, we love you dearly. And so we hope this time has been refreshing for you. Uh, we look forward to having you back up here and uh, leading us in God's word. Um, with that, uh, when we talked about doing this Psalms of, of Summer series, I immediately thought of Psalm 14. One of the things that I truly enjoy is apologetics, defending the faith. Um, Psalm 14 has a particular point in the very first verse that is very applicable to apologetics. Um, I, I think our apologetic series was probably the favorite series for the youth. Uh, I know it was one of my favorite series as well. Uh, and we just recently finished digging into Proverbs, the first eight chapters, with the junior hires on Sunday, too. So uh, all of that stuff really works together well and, and is really um, drawn out of this first verse of Psalm 14. With that, our sermon this morning has two main points. I know you guys are used to my, my three points, uh, but um, I have two main points, and in the second main point, I have three sub-points. So hopefully that will be helpful to follow along. Um, our first main point for the sermon this morning uh, is the apologetic application of Psalm 14, verse 1. Our second main point will be the effects of denying God, which include these three subpoints: First, total depravity. Second, uh, inconsistent terror. And third, the need for salvation. So again, our, our first point this morning is the apologetic application of Psalm 14.1. The second point this morning is the effects of denying God, which include total depravity, inconsistent terror, and the need for salvation. So with that, let's pray, and then we will dive in. Father, thank you for this morning. This day in, in which your saints come together to specifically and intentionally dive into your word, to sing praises unto you, to worship with other saints gathered in your name, to pray together, to make much of your name, Lord. I pray that as we dig into your word this morning that that would be our hearts that we would long to see and savor you in and through your word, that we would enjoy you in a unique way this morning in our time together. We also pray, Lord, for, for the hearts of those here who don't know you, that your Holy Spirit would be at work, uh, removing hearts of stone and bringing in hearts of flesh unto salvation. We love you, Lord. May the words of, of, the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so point one, the apologetic application. When Scripture declares that someone is a fool, it, it consistently follows up with why they're considered a fool. God's word isn't, isn't just being flippant or rude or, or name-calling. There's a real point behind this. If I were to ask you, why does Scripture call somebody a fool, would you be able to tell me? Would you know why Scripture uses that term? Have you ever thought much of the term? The, the Hebrew word that's being used here is nabal. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that properly, but uh, I can't pronounce English properly, so that's okay. Um, <laughs> Henry Ainsworth, a 16th century scholar, said in his annotations that the word nabal has the significance of fading, dying or falling away as a withered leaf or flower. It's a title given to the foolish man as having lost the juice and sap of wisdom, reason, honesty, and godliness. And what is truly interesting about this passage is that the fool has said this declaration in his heart. Now, we don't often speak with our hearts. We, we use our mouths to speak. So the, the passage is getting at something specific here. There's something that's being pointed out. It's drawing our attention to. 
we need to see a particular aspect that Psalm 14.1 is trying to show us. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. This could be just as well translated that the fool has said in his heart, no God, or no God for me. This is why the speaking takes place in the heart. The fool here has decided in his heart he does not want God. At the root of his being, he wants no God. The original term used here in the Hebrew was Elohim. The fool declares in his heart, no Elohim. Elohim is the most, pop, or most used proper title given by Israel to God. When we read through uh, Genesis, Elohim is the one who creates all things, including man. And so the reality here is that the fool has said of Elohim, who created everything, not for me. The Elohim who made a covenant with his people to save them from their sins, not for me. You see, the irony here is that the very ability for the fool to deny God actually requires God's creating and sustaining the fool. A common illustration used is the picture of a young child who slaps their father in the face. They can't even reach the father unless he is holding them up. They rely upon the father to do the very thing that shouldn't be done. Consider this. If the fool got what he declared in his heart, he would cease to exist. If there were no God, there would be no creation, and the fool would have never been able to say, no God. In fact, we see this reality in Job chapter 34, verses 14 and 15. If he, meaning God, should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish and man would return to dust. Charles Spurgeon says in his treasury on David, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God or no God. So monstrous, monstrous is the assertion that the man hardly dared to put it as a positive statement, but went very near to doing so. It is not merely the wish of the sinner's corrupt nature and the hope of his rebellious heart, but he manages, after a fashion, to bring himself to assert it. And at certain seasons, he thinks that he believes it. It is a solemn reflection that some who worship God with their lips may, in their hearts, be saying, No God. It is worthy of observation that he does not say there is no Jehovah, but there is no Elohim. Deity in the abstract is not so much the object of attack, as the covenant, personal, ruling, and governing presence of God in the world. God as ruler, lawgiver, worker, savior, is the butt at which the arrows of human wrath are shot. How impotent the malice! How mad the rage which raves and foams against him in whom we live and move and have our being. How horrible the insanity which leads a man who owes his all to God to cry out, No God. How terrible the depravity which makes the whole race adopt this as their heart's desire. There's an amazing passage in Proverbs chapter 1 that I really fear most simply do not take seriously. So often it gets read and just kind of passed over. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. According to this passage, someone who does not properly fear God cannot begin to have knowledge. It is said very plainly, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, for clarity's sake, can someone who has no fear of God seem intelligent? 
Yeah, of course they can. Can they have a depth of understanding about particular things so as to be doctors or scientists? Sure. So what is meant by this proverb that states so clearly that those who do not rightly fear the Lord cannot begin to have knowledge? Well, the fool, the one who denies God or says, no God for me, cannot begin to have true knowledge. That is knowledge that is both correct and justifiable. For example, when someone claims to know something, they're, they're making a truth claim, but then they declare that they could be wrong about it, do they truly know it? The answer is no. Uh, if I said this podium is exactly four foot six inches tall, but I could be wrong, do I know the height of the podium? No, I, I don't have certain knowledge of the height. Perhaps it is four feet six inches, and I was right, but I can't justify how I came to that conclusion because I, I could be wrong. Now, bear with me for a minute because this will really change the way you understand what God is declaring in his word. God says plainly in scripture that you cannot begin to have knowledge without properly acknowledging the creator and giver of knowledge. You see, unless we have infinite knowledge of all things, not just knowledge of things that exist now, but knowledge of all things in the past, and knowledge of all things in the future, and not just some knowledge of things now, but infinite knowledge of the past and the present and the future, then we cannot begin to know for certain anything we claim that we know. The logical reason for this is quite simply put that the very things we don't have knowledge of could prove to us that what we thought we knew, we did not know. If it sounds confusing, just just give it a minute. Let it sit for a second. That which you do not know can prove what you think you know to be wrong. This is why honest unbelievers, or better said, unbelievers who are attempting to be consistent, will say they could be wrong about everything they claim to know. In fact, I've seen this happen in many debates between atheists and Christians. The atheist says, we know things based upon the the best possible accumulation of information. They would say they have confidence that they are right based upon what they do know. And this is why God says in Scripture so clearly that if you deny him, the only source of infinite, exhaustive knowledge, not just exhaustive knowledge of the past and the present, but of the future as well, unless you acknowledge him rightly, and if you did, you would most certainly have a proper fear and respect of the Lord, then you cannot begin to have knowledge. Oh, you could know some things or or think you know them and be correct, but you cannot justify why or how you know them for certain unless you properly acknowledge the one true God. Epistemology is the study of how we know what we know. It's kind of what I'm talking about right now. For the Christian and, and for the rest of the world, even though they may suppress this truth, our epistemology is revelational epistemology. We know what we know because the all-knowing God of the universe has revealed it to us. And this is really, truly amazing, you guys. This, God not only reveals truth to us and to the world, but he reveals justifiable truth. He caused us who are believers to repent of our sins and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And this repentance is what leads us to a knowledge of truth. 1 Timothy 3 declares that God must first grant us repentance And that this granting of repentance leads those who were God's enemies at one point to a knowledge of the truth. We're going to read that passage a little bit later. The fool who says in his heart, no God, loves only himself. 
They love their sin. They're all about autonomy. They do not want a ruler. They do not want an authority. They want to be the ones who make the decisions for themselves. And this is really what began in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And it's continued on since then. Mankind in their sin wants to be their own God. They want to call the shots, and they do not want anyone telling them that they are morally wrong for doing this. In fact, the primary worldview of our current culture is a sort of relativism. And relativism in itself is self-refuting. It contradicts the very statements that it makes. Therefore, proving to be a foolish worldview. When I say it's self-refuting, what I mean is that it promotes an idea, but the idea contradicts itself. Relativism claims that everyone can believe what they want to believe. It's what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me, so long as it doesn't affect others or isn't forced upon others to believe what you believe. Now, it doesn't take much to see that this worldview refutes itself. In fact, it promotes that all should believe that what it is declaring is correct. It says you can't tell others what to believe, but you'd better believe this worldview. Let me say it this way. Everyone can believe what they want to believe as long as they believe that everyone can believe what they want to believe. This is a self-refuting worldview, and therefore it should be set aside as foolish. But in our current, uh, particularly our U.S. culture, it really is the most prevalent of worldviews. And this is exactly what Proverbs 1.7 is declaring to us. What you're left with when you deny God doesn't even begin to resemble knowledge. If you give up the only all-knowing source, which is the one true God of Scripture, all you are left with is inconsistency, arbitrariness, and ultimately absurdity. For example, you will have atheists who say they cannot know, but they are confident in their assumptions. Sorry, who say... They cannot know, but that they are confident in their assumptions. Then they will act like they are certain, not just confident, when they argue with you that God does not exist. They will say they cannot know anything for certain, but neither can you. One of my favorite apologists always asks them, are you certain about that? I mean, if they can't know anything for certain, then how can they know for certain that you can't know anything for certain. Do you guys see the contradiction there? The absurdity of that worldview? This is just one small example of inconsistency that you're left with when you say in your heart, no God. When you deny God, you have become or you are a fool. The reason the culture around us tries to hold to this view of God is because they believe it gives them the greatest amount of of autonomy. A few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Paul shared the illustration of the kite conversation, um, essentially saying that the kite is restrained by this string that holds it, and it just wants desperately to be free. But if it were to cut itself from that string, the kite essentially will, over time, crash and fall to pieces. The very thing that it wants, it's desperate for in the string that's holding it. And that's the same thing for man. Man wants to be free. They want to have a a particular life. But when they deny the God who holds them together, whatever it is they're searching for simply crumbles and falls apart. The first step of revelation needed for someone to properly fear God is a Holy Spirit-filled revelation of their sin and need of a savior. If God graciously regenerates a man who is dead in their sin, he grants them repentance and faith, then that person who was once blind to the realities of God now has eyes to see and ears to hear. The scripture says this over and over again. 
From here on out, the second reality of Revelation as it relates to epistemology is brought forward. The all-knowing God is the only one who exists and can claim certain knowledge. Now, in order for you and I to claim to know something, we either have to know all things through all times exhaustively or have a revelation from someone who does. For us mere creatures, the latter is the case. And this revelation comes from God. For clarity's sake, not just any false god, but the one true God of Scripture, the triune God. The Scriptures are very clear that there are no other gods. Isaiah 44, verses 6-8. through 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Exhaustive knowledge of the future. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Now, the second revelation of knowledge that we receive is what we see in God's Word. After a man has been granted repentance and given faith and trust in Christ Jesus as Lord, we are enabled to see the truth to us in the Word of God. 2 Timothy 2, 23-26. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is why as a Christian... We can be certain about things. We have the special revelation of God written down in the 66 books of the Old and New Testament Scriptures. As long as you are going to God's revelation, God's word for your certainty, then you can know things for certain because God cannot be wrong. There is no future thing, no past thing, no present thing that would come to God's knowledge and prove him to be wrong. He knows all things. In stark contrast to this, the fool says in his heart, No God. Therefore, even what the fool may know according to worldly wisdom, he cannot justify or know for certain. Even if the fool is right, he cannot justify why he is right, and he must say, I could be wrong. At least, if he is willing to be consistent, This is what he must declare. You see, they cannot give a reason for their ability to reason apart from the God of reason. Therefore, they are left to the futility of their minds. And we see this reality in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse for although they knew God they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God 
for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. You see, in their suppression of the truth of God, and in God's wrath poured out over them, they have become fools. Professing to be wise in their hearts, they've actually become darkened. This Christian was you and I at one point. Prior to God's work in our hearts, we were suppressors of truth and dead in our sin. We must see that when we deny the very one in whom we move and live and have our being, we are left with absurdity. We are left thinking we are wise and yet having darkened, foolish, and debased minds. We invent evil, the passage will go on to say. And just think about the world that we live in, church. Is this not the case? The Word of God proves true. 2,000 years ago, God knew what would be happening today just as He did in eternity's past. He has exhaustive knowledge, and time and time again, the Scriptures prove God's knowledge to be true. Let me give a few examples of the foolishness of denying God. The fool, the one who suppresses the truth of God by saying in their heart, No God, cannot give an account or justification for their desire for justice or equality. What is an equality in a world that's godless? Who gets to decide what is equal? Who sets the standard of the scales to decide if something is being weighed equally? Why would the world why would the word equal even exist if there was not an objective universal standard from which to call things equal or fair or just? In truth, this word or idea could not reasonably exist apart from such a standard. If a relativistic world was the proper one, then what is fair for me is fair for me, and what is fair for you is fair for you. But what if our ideas of fairness are not the same? What do we do then? According to an, an atheistic worldview, according to the standards of atheism, how can the atheist account for equality or justice? Since the atheistic worldview claims that we are random chance happenings at our core, we are basic chemical responses happening in a variety of different ways, why should or how could one chemical reacting be unjust against another chemical reacting? If, if my brain's chemicals tell me something is fair and your brain's chemicals tell you it's not, which person's chemicals are reacting properly? One of the most famous atheists to live said this, There is no right or wrong. There is no good or bad. Just blind and pitiless indifference. You see, the reality is that atheists fight for what they think is just because they are made in the image of a God who is just. And they cannot escape that reality. Their actions betray their worldview, and they lean on or borrow from the Christian worldview in order to attack what the Christian worldview proclaims. They're left in absurdity. This is the basis of what it means to be a fool. When your reasoning and the laws of logic, sorry, when you use your reasoning and the laws of logic daily to survive, and yet you deny the very existence of the only God who makes reasoning and laws of logic possible, you live in absurdity. When we deny our only source of truth, truth is left for the inconsistent, arbitrary, and absurd man to decide upon. Just take a look around at our world. How's that working out for us? 
when mankind in their sin and their rebellion towards God gets to decide what is true and right, how is that working out for us? We are telling children as young as three years old, church, three years old, that if they decide they are a boy or a girl, even though their biology reveals something different, that their feelings are all that matters, again, this desire for autonomy, and therefore they should mutilate their bodies to make it match their feelings. That's child abuse, plain and simple. It is the declaration of Romans chapter 1. We have become inventors of evil. And this is what happens when you deny the God who has so clearly revealed himself so as to leave mankind without excuse. Plain and simply put, a fool declares something to be true, but cannot live according to their declared beliefs. It's not hard to see why Scripture calls a person who denies God a fool when God is the only source of truth. And yet they go on to make truth claims. We saw this in our apologetic series during midweek. Uh, when a person claims that there is no absolute truth, and they declare this as if it's a fact, as if it's absolutely true, they're revealing themselves to be fools. So let's get back to our psalm passage and look at the results of the fool who denies God. Point two, the results of denying God. Subpoint A, total depravity. Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The fool does abominable deeds. They are corrupted to the core. There is none who does good. And this seems to be the declaration of Scripture through and through. What's unique about this psalm is that it's actually almost identically repeated, except for verse 5 primarily, in Psalm 53. I'm going to read Psalm 53, 1 through 6. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge? Who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Now, it's not as though the, the writer of the psalm forgot that he had already written this particular psalter, the song. It's not as though God forgot that it was in the book of Psalms already and we needed to write it again. When God repeats himself, He's drawing our attention to something. Parents, when you repeat yourself to a child, you are trying to make sure that they heard what you were saying. When God repeats himself, it is for our benefit. God repeats it as a way of drawing our attention to a deep truth that he is concerned we will not get. In fact, Paul, in the book of Romans, would go on to quote this very psalm, so we see it repeated in Scripture three times. Let's see how Paul says this in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. 
Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, where would Paul get this idea that there is no fear of God before their eyes? Well, for one, the the way in which they live reveals that they do not believe there will be a consequence for their vile actions. Secondly, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Someone who feared the Lord and even had the slightest beginning of knowledge would not continue on this course. These people have denied God. They have no fear of Him. They have become altogether worthless and only do evil. Our psalm passage continues in verse 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. You see, this is repeated over and over again in Scripture. And keep in mind, the psalmist has already declared that this type of living and thinking began with the cry of a heart who declares, No God. This is the state of the heart of all mankind in their sin. None of us did good. None of us sought after God. None of us understood or feared the Lord. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In our sin-dead state, we all fit this description and were desperate for a Savior. And this is just one example from Scripture where we get the doctrine of total depravity. In our Word of Truth Catechism, we have a definition for this doctrine, total depravity, and it goes like this. As a result of Adam's sin... Every person born of both man and woman has inherited a sin nature and is utterly dependent on saving grace exerted by God for a new nature and salvation. Because of the fall, every part of natural man has been corrupted by sin. His mind, will, emotions, and flesh. Sin affects the whole person. All people sin because they are sinners by nature. All men are conceived in sin, dead in sin, slaves to sin, and deserving of God's wrath. Total depravity does not mean that man is without a conscience or any sense of right or wrong, nor does it mean that man is as wicked or sinful as he could be. Total depravity recognizes that the Bible teaches that even the apparent good things that unregenerate man does are ruined by sin because they are not done out of faith in Jesus for the glory of God. This doctrine and the scriptures that we get it from reveal to us our desperate need for a Savior. In our depravity, we then play out the sinful desires of our heart, However, what cannot be avoided is the reality that God is true even if man in their sin don't want him to be. So what we see is this ridiculous inconsistency in the lives of those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Which brings us to our second sub-point, inconsistent terror. The psalm continues, verse 4, Have they no knowledge... All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. Now, as I got to this particular passage in this psalm, it, it kind of stuck out differently to me. Whenever that happens, it, whenever it seems like something doesn't fit, it should draw our attention to it. We should really try to see what God is saying there because certainly he has a point in his words. None of them are wasted, right? Well, We already know that the fool has no knowledge according to God's word. The fool must fear the Lord to begin to have knowledge. And since he does not fear the Lord, he cannot begin to have knowledge. But what in the world does it mean that they eat up my people like bread and do not call upon the Lord? 
This obviously shouldn't be understood as like a literal eating. David wasn't writing a song about a cannibal tribe that was eating God's people, right? Um, what he was actually getting at was that the, the fool who has denied God was also the same fool that was devouring the people of God. They destroyed the people of God as regularly and normally as they would eat bread. The act of eating bread during this time was a typical daily practice. It was an average thing, a normal thing for people to, uh, who make up the context of this passage from David's psalm to eat bread regularly. And so the fool devouring or destroying God's people was as common to them as their daily meal. It was not odd or out of place. Rather, it was a normal common practice to destroy the people of God. Now, before we move on to our next verse, though, we need to look at the first words of this one. Have they no knowledge? Now, we know that they do not fear the Lord. According to God's truth, we know the answer to that question. No. The reason it's brought up is is more of a rhetorical reason. Have they no knowledge? They're devouring the people of God, so they clearly have no fear of the Lord. And that is precisely what the passage is getting at. And it's so important when we move into our next verse, verse 5. They, there they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. The fool of Psalm 14 displays his foolishness. He has declared in his heart, no God, but here he is in great terror. Great terror from what, you may ask? Great terror from the very God that he has said, no. What's he afraid of? I thought there was no God. Do you see how inconsistent that is? The fool says there is no God, but when God is with his people, the fool surely fears the God that they are denying. They're in great terror because God is with the righteous. God is the refuge for the poor and for the ones who are persecuted by men who hate God. But if God truly doesn't exist, as the fool declares, why are they so afraid? They're in great terror of the God who, though they deny, they cannot avoid the reality that they are utterly dependent upon this God for life and breath. One of my favorite apologists tells a story of an interaction that he had with a man outside of a um, Christian festival or revival. And he tells a story like this. He was walking up to this Christian festival and this man pulls up on a bicycle and he's got um, a couple of books on uh, Buddhism. And the man looks at, at the apologist and he goes, what's going on up there? And the apologist goes, ah, it's just a bunch of crazy Christians getting together or something. And the guy goes, ah. Oh. And then the apologist goes, yeah, I'm one of them. It's nice to meet you. <laughs> and the guy on the bicycle looks at him and he goes, you know, um, I was raised as a Christian. I was taught these truths about God. And about five years ago, in the same year, both of my brothers took their lives. And I decided that this God can't possibly exist. I was so angry. But you know what? This Buddha, this guy, man, he's really great. I really like this Buddha. This is really neat books that I've been reading and I've been searching, and this is just really neat. Have you ever thought about this guy? And the apologist looks at him and says, I just have one question for you. When your brothers took their lives, was that Buddha the God you were mad at? He said the guy's eyes filled with tears. You see... The reality that the God who he tried so hard to suppress because he was angry at him only proved the very fact that he knew that that God existed. The man's own actions betrayed what he declared. Now, um, I've been blessed to recently have some back and forth email conversation with a young lady who had emailed me some questions. She started the email by asking about God and saying that, that she had grown up in church, but that she decided to deny the faith that um, 
some things had happened in her life, and, and she just couldn't believe in this God anymore. One of her, her friends uh, was severely disabled, and she passed away. And so when I replied to her inquiry, I said, well, I don't believe you stopped believing about God. In fact, I'd submit to you that your anger toward God, the, the reasons you give to say you stopped believing in him, betray you. You're not mad at nobody when your friend died. You're mad at somebody. You're mad at the God who created your friend and created you. And when she replied, she said, you know what, you're right. And we've since had really great back and forth conversations. It's been really neat. But um, time and time again, what we see is that the fool who has denied God in his heart cannot escape the reality that he lives in God's world. And therefore, his very actions, his very thoughts, the arguments he tries to make betray the worldview he proclaims to have. This is why here in this 14th chapter of Psalm, the fool is terrified by the God that he denies exists. Now, this is obviously not a right and holy fear of God. It is his own conscience betraying him because it's not agreeing with what he has declared in his heart. In fact, between the two parallel psalms, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, this section is the only real difference. Psalm 53 says in this section, There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. The fool runs when there is no danger. The fool is in terror where there is no terror. And this is the absurdity of denying the God you know exists. And many have denied God for various reasons. The problem is their reasoning, which can only be right and reasonable if God does exist, often leads them to an outcome that utterly destroys their ideals in the first place. For example, there are many who say they cannot accept God because God declares particular things to be sinful. What they fail to understand is that by denying the God they know exists, it doesn't change the reality that God does indeed declare those things to be sinful. You see, your denial of something cannot change the reality that God will punish unrepentant sinners for their disobedience to Him. If you go on suppressing the truth about God and unrighteousness because you don't like the just and righteous requirements of the one true God, it will not change his righteous requirements. And I would submit to you that you have no justifiable standard upon which you can even say you don't think what God has called just, just. No, instead you will end up suffering alongside of those whom you were fighting for, having done no good for them or for yourself. You will be left in absurdity. On the other hand, if you would repent of wanting to declare your own thoughts to God, if you would submit yourself to the God you know exists, then and only then, through love and declaring the truth, could you make a difference in the lives of those whom you are currently saying you care for. If you cared for people who are dead in their sin, you would lovingly speak the truth to them, not deny the truth or the truth giver, and therefore leave them to perish. Do you see the foolishness of this action? We are not God. We do not get to declare to God what he should or shouldn't do. It's the song that we sang earlier from taken out of Job. Where were you when I created everything? Our Word of Truth Catechism declares this about God. I think it's question one, if I recall correctly. Who is God? God is the almighty creator, sustainer, and ruler of all things. He is perfect and the standard by which all things are measured. You see, God is the standard. Not you, not me. 
How foolish is it for a limited, finite human who can't remember the password to their two-year-old Google account to tell God, no, that's not right. I don't think that's fair or just. God who knows every hair on every head of every human he has ever created. And yet here we are, declaring to God what he should or shouldn't do. And this is what Paul's declaring in Romans 9 when he says, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Whoever you are, no matter what you think, you cannot even begin to have truth apart from God. The very thing you don't know could prove what you think you know to be right as wrong. Since we lack infinite knowledge, the only way we can have truth and know it for certain is to depend on the one who has infinite knowledge and has revealed these truths to us in his word. This is why we hold the word of God in such high esteem here. I'm mean, just for the record, Jesus did too. John chapter 17, verse 17. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. What is truth? God's word revealed to us in his infinite knowledge is our source of truth. God is the standard by which all things are measured. Isaiah 5, 20-21 reads this. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Would you take heed of these words today? If you are claiming to love someone who is living a life of sin and therefore calling what God calls bad good and what God calls good bad, would you please hear this woe unto you today? If you truly care, then go to the only source of truth this world has, the all-knowing God. Look to God's word and see what he declares about such things. Do not fulfill the Romans 1 passage of giving approval to those who practice wicked things and deserve God's righteous wrath and death. Instead, repent of your sin and trust in God who is able to save any, even to the uttermost. God is the one who changes hearts, not you or I. God can give faith and peel back blindness that is caused by sin. You and I cannot. God can reveal things to us in such a way that we can know them for certain. Man cannot. The fool is afraid of the very thing he claims does not exist, or at least the God he does not want to exist, and therefore he reveals the depths of his foolishness. They are in great terror where there is no terror. Which brings us to our final subpoint our desperate need for salvation. Psalm 14, 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. There's really two main points here. And the first and the primary point here is for the Christian who's being persecuted by the fool who denies God. For that person, there's this cry from David for salvation, for relief, for protection. Now, what's kind of encompassed in that is this unique declaration for the fool who has denied God. There is salvation. There is a way out of this absurd way of living, this futile way of thinking. You see, salvation has come out of Zion. Christ has come to save sinners, not just from death and the righteous penalty of our rebellion against God, but Jesus has come to redeem people from the reality of living in absurdity now. 
Jesus died to redeem our reasoning even now, not just a future hope of glory. We're not left in this inconsistent state of living as if we believe things to be true and yet having no way to justify truth in our limited capacity. Christ has redeemed his people from the penalty of their sin and by grace through faith causes us to properly see him as Lord. He restores to us the use of our reasoning now. We have been redeemed to use our minds in a way that honors the Lord and allows us to live without absurdity, permeating our actions and our thoughts. God in his great mercy has sent Christ to bear the full cup of wrath owed to the elect. In this, God has redeemed us unto eternity with him and unto clearly using our minds now. We're able to do this because God has given us a new heart that no longer declares within it no God. Rather, those who have been saved by God's grace see and understand their desperate need to go to God's word for truth and the foundation of their very lives. We mine the gold from God's word and we apply it to our life. And this is what it means to live with a biblical worldview. We have to live our lives based upon the Word of God. It is our source of truth. If we are holding something to be true and are living in a way that is inconsistent with God's Word, then God's Word, which is our standard of truth, corrects us. And we use it to rely upon to bring us sanctification. The very thing Christ Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17. What we must see today in our psalm passage is that the human condition is far more terrible than many understand. Those who are dead in their sin and say in their heart, no God, are desperate for salvation and on the road to destruction for themselves and for others who do not fall in line with their worldview. We were all once in this position. All mankind have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Oh, that a Savior would come out of Zion, and He has, church. Jesus came and paid for the sins of all who would believe in Him. When God grants us repentance and faith, we can finally live in the world that God has created as consistent humans, honoring God, who is the Creator of all things. You see, this psalm displays the beautiful picture of the gospel. It begins with sin and the root of sin, which is primarily the suppression suppression of the truth of God. It goes on to display the effects of sin and the state of mankind in their sin, the absurdity of those who deny God and yet are simultaneously terrified of the God they say does not exist. Then it ends with the final redemption of the gracious God who sends the Redeemer to save even those who have, for whatever time in their life, denied the Lord who made them. Praise God for such insight from David to us in this psalm. Let these realities drive our lives as Christians, and let's live consistently honoring God in His creation. Let those of us who have been given grace and faith honor Christ as Lord in our hearts, and rightly defend the faith against any who remain dead in their sin. Let these realities sink into the heart of those who still say, no God. And through God's mercy and grace, through His work of redemption, may they turn from their sin in futile ways unto true life in Christ Jesus, our only Lord and Savior. Thank you, Lord, for our future redemption, where we will enjoy you eternally. And thank you for saving us unto right living now. Let's pray. Father, we, we owe all truth. We owe genuine life and certainty. We owe everything to you. In you we live and move and have our being. How foolish were our hearts at one point to declare no God when they couldn't even beat without you. 
I pray, Lord, as, as we prepare our hearts to sing praises to you, that there are those of us here who are still in that state, that you would reveal to them the, their desperate need for you, for a Savior. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.